Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, our focus today is really on enhancing our understanding of the core challenges in the American healthcare system and from a broad perspective, looking at some fundamental solutions. And so we are incredibly fortunate to have a guest on the show, uh, Robert Pearl, MD, who's an authority with decades of hands-on experience in a healthcare system called Kaiser Permanente that many have said is the future direction that American healthcare should take. He has led numerous initiatives as a leader in that system, which have really set the bar for what value-based healthcare should be and the outcomes it can deliver. Uh, in terms of a bit more of a formal introduction, Dr. Robert Pearl is the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, uh, the nation's largest medical group, and he served in that role from 1999 to 2017. He's also the former president of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group, uh, and that is uh, the medical group on the East Coast. The uh, Permanente Medical Group was on the West Coast. In these roles, he has led uh, 10,000 physicians, 38,000 staff, and was responsible for the nationally recognized medical care of 5 million and Kaiser Permanente members, again, both on the West and East Coast. Recently, he was named as one of modern healthcare's 50 most influential physician leaders. Uh, Dr. Pearl serves as a clinical professor of plastic surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine, is on the faculty of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he teaches courses on strategy and leadership and lectures on information technology and healthcare policy. Just last year, in 2017, he authored a book called Mistreated, why we think we're getting good health care and why we're usually wrong. It's a Washington Post bestseller and it offers a roadmap for transforming American health care. Uh, Dr. Pearl wanted me to let you all know that all the proceeds from that book go to Doctors Without Borders. He's a regular contributor to Forbes and he covers the business of health care and the culture of medicine. Most recently, and we're going to talk about this a bit at the end of the uh, interview, he is uh, the host of a new podcast called Fixing Healthcare. Dr. Pearl has been featured on CBS This Morning, CNBC, NPR. He's been in Time, U.S. Today, Bloomberg's News. He's uh, published more than 100 articles in various medical journals and contributed to numerous books. He's a frequent keynote speaker at healthcare and medical technology conferences. And folks, we're going to get into the interview. We're going to drop into this interview, which uh, recorded uh, in the past couple of days. Before I do, though, I just want to say I have um, read uh, Dr. Pearl's book, Mistreated. Actually, I've read parts of it more than once. And I have to say that uh, Dr. Pearl is actually quite gifted in making very complicated situations, such as our American healthcare system, a lot easier to understand. Um, so many of the chapters uh, in the book are are really fantastic and stand out. Um, uh, so I would I would strongly recommend it as a read. It's, again, it's called Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong. So without further ado, uh, let's drop right into the interview with Dr. Robert Pearl. You wrote the book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong. So how broken is the American healthcare system? Um, how would you characterize the problems we're seeing in healthcare today? The American healthcare system is a 19th century cottage industry. It's fragmented. 
You have doctors scattered across the community, unconnected to each other, hospitals often multiple, unconnected to each other. It's paid on a piecemeal basis. We call it FIFA service. The more you do, the more you get paid. Whether there's anything positive uh, is irrelevant. If, and often, if you have a complication, you get paid twice. The technology is left over from the last century. We never would accept the technology and healthcare any place in the rest of our lives. I mean, try to imagine having to go to the airport to get your ticket. And yet, if you want to get your information, you have to go to the doctor's office. Uh, try to imagine an inability uh, to know what something is going to cost before you purchase it. And that's the American healthcare system. And overall, there's really very little leadership. There are various people with titles, but they actually don't organize care, particularly around care delivery. And the consequences are exactly what you'd expect. First, we're twice as expensive as almost as anyone else. We spend over $10,000 per American in the U.S. today. Uh, We spend more than the entire nation of India spends on its entire GDP, everything housing, clothes, transportation, food, we spend more than that on healthcare and they have 1.2 billion people. We spend more than the nation of France on everything they spend on, including truffles and champagne. We spend a lot of money. And according to the Commonwealth Fund, we are last of the 11 most industrialized nations, last in life expectancy, last in childhood mortality, We spend a lot of money and we get very little for it. That is a system that is very broken. And as I say and mistreat, I tell the story of my dad. 200,000 people die in the United States every year from medical error. Probably another 200,000 from omissions in prevention. Another 100,000 from complications of chronic disease that could have been avoided. Probably close to half a million people dying every year in the world's most expensive healthcare system. That to me is a definition of broken. And um, you talk about your father in the book and you start out the book with, with the story about your father. Do you want to share that story just to give a sense of, uh, I think some of the quality gaps? So my father was a really remarkable man. He was the son of two immigrant parents, worked his way through college, through dental school, World War II, he could have stayed safely behind American lines. Instead, he volunteered for the 101st Airborne, parachuted on D-Day. He and his troop were captured by the Germans. He led a daring escape through the forests of Germany, sorry, forests of France, uh, in the middle of the night, two nights in a row, brought everyone back safely. Certainly what Tom Brokaw would call the greatest generation. My father was a very energetic man, rarely slept more than four or five hours a night. And one day he felt something he had never experienced before, tiredness. He went to the doctor and they diagnosed a hemolytic anemia. And as you know, the spleen is the organ that filters out the damaged red cells. And they had to take his spleen out in order to restore his blood count and return his energy. As you also know, the spleen has another important uh, function. It filters out bacteria, particularly the pneumococcus because pneumococcus is a very hard shell, often protected against the antibodies in our body. And again, as you and every other physician knows, it's a very effective vaccine against the pneumococcus. Now, my dad lived half of the year in New York and half in Florida. 
My brother Ron is chairman of anesthesia at Stanford. We handpicked his doctors. They were excellent. But the ones in New York thought the ones in Florida had given him the vaccine. The ones in Florida were sure that New York had. Primary care thought the surgeon had. The surgeon thought primary care had. In the end, he never had the vaccine. Came out to visit my brother and me in California. Had dinner at my house. Went to my brother's house in Palo Alto. And my brother wakes up five o'clock for ICU rounds. And there's my dad on the floor, unresponsive. Stays that way for four days in the ICU, over two weeks in the hospital. He doesn't die during that admission. He dies subsequently from a complication related to the problem. And of course, the diagnosis, pneumococcal septicemia, completely preventable problem had he received the vaccine. The other half of my dad's story that I often tell at the end of my presentations is about the end of his life. My brother and I got a phone call Saturday night. My dad had had a bleed into his brain. He had to have his anticoagulation for an atrial fibrillation adjusted. And he was having a complication from the original pneumococcal septicemia being treated. We fly out to Florida where he has that time of the year. And there my dad is strapped down in bed. A tube going in his mouth down to his lungs, another tube going through his nose down into his stomach. A line of doctors out the door. The ENT doctor wants to do the tracheostomy. The GI doctor wants to do the feeding tube through his, the skin over the abdomen. The neurosurgeon wants to take out pieces of his skull. My brother and I look at the films and my dad's not going to get better. He doesn't want to live for the consequences of the amount of cerebral injury that he has suffered. So we thank his doctors for the care they've provided. We tell him that we would rather nothing more be done. My dad spends two and a half more days in the hospital and we see no physicians. For two and a half days, not a single physician comes by because in the system of American healthcare, in the fee-for-service world, there is no billing code. We call CPT or ICD-9. There's no code for compassion. You can't get paid for being with a family in its time of greatest need. The American healthcare system is broken. And that's why I wrote Mistreated. Or we think we're getting good healthcare, or are usually wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's also why I tell the story. Mm-hmm. Because the numbers tend to glaze people's eyes open. $3.4 trillion a year we spend, 18% of GDP. That doesn't mean much to them. Mm-hmm. But when they hear the story of my dad, they think of their dad, or their mom, or their kid. Or their cousin, and everyone has a story. And once they understand that story and understand the problems, the harm that's inflicted unnecessarily, the lack of compassion that exists, not because it's not good people. Doctors are amazing. Mm. Doctors are the most dedicated, mission-driven people. The system takes it out of them. Then they get mobilized to be able to make change in American healthcare. Yeah, I think, first of all, I'm sorry to hear about your dad, um, but thank you for sharing that. Thank you for writing about it. And, uh, and, and I think you're absolutely right. The, you know, you can quote these stats. It's, you know, it's somewhere between 500 to 1,000 people a day die in the American healthcare system. These are avoidable, preventable deaths. They're literally caused by the system itself. And again, n- no individual's fault per se. It is a system issue. Um, and, uh, but your story, um, and you're absolutely right. Your story, um, uh, touches me because I actually lost my mom at, at a very early age, um, 
just about uh, three or so years ago, and uh, she had a, uh, a total hip replacement. Um, she had actually had one before um, in the one hip, and this was in the other hip uh, a couple years later. Um, relatively healthy, um, active woman uh, in her early 70s, and um, she had a complication after the surgery, ended up in the ICU, ended up in a nursing home, and got C. difficile and died of sepsis. And, um, you know, this infection, the C. difficile infection, is something, again, that should be, should be prevented. Um, and um, so, uh, again, it, you know, it's hard to, to um, it's easy to talk about those numbers, and it's very hard to talk about, you know, um, uh, the person you lost, uh, and it's, it's, um, you know, something that's avoidable, right? I, I still, even though I wasn't taking care of her and she was in a different city, uh, I find myself actually blaming myself for not, you know, doing something to help her. I'm not sure what I could have done, but, um, but it's, um, it's a, it, it's, you're right. It brings it home. Um, and, and so many people, um, have these sorts of stories and understand it that way. Why do you think, Given these, I mean, glaring statistics and this glaring reality, why do you think people, the American public, um, don't understand um, how broken the system is? Or do you think they do? First, again, my sympathies to you for your your loss of your mom. Losing a parent is terrible. Losing a child is even worse. Uh, And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will have personal family tragedies that uh, they too will respond to. You're right, 76% of Americans will say that we have the best healthcare in the world when there's not a shred of evidence that it's true. And that's really why I began researching mistreated, why we think we're getting good healthcare, why we're usually wrong. And I looked at psychological studies that were many decades old. The reason I looked at the older studies is today they could never get through the human experimentation committees. I looked at the most modern, most up-to-date brain scanning, and I saw a consistent pattern. And this probably explains why you couldn't have done very much for your mom, because the etiology was probably a physician who didn't wash his or her hands. But let me start by offering a couple of thoughts that I learned from the research. That context shapes perception and changes behavior. It's not knowledge. And the example that I start with is Philip Zimbardo from Stanford, the classic prison experiment. Everyone studies it in college. Here he takes normal students, half become jailers, they get aviator sunglasses, half become the jailies, they get OR greens with numbers. He puts them together because he wants to see about a better way for our penal system in the United States to evolve. Within 48 hours, the jailers see, and that's the key word, see, the jailies as dangerous, hardened criminals. The jailies see the jailers sadistic. Now, remember, they all know that the other half are simply students. Within six days, the whole experiment ends. The context of being in that jail And that's the similar thing for physicians. As you know, every physician has to take tests, hospital-acquired infection. The third leading cause of death in the United States, hospital-acquired infection, like your mom. Mm. They all know that the most common bacterium is the C. difficile. 
They all will get a hundred on the test. It's only carried on hands or clothes. It's not carried. Through, it doesn't go through the air. And the most effective way to prevent the infection is to wash their hands. And there's now been 80 studies that show the same thing. One in three times when doctors go from one room to the next, they don't wash their hands. One in three times. Why? They all know that they could be carrying bacteria. If they really thought about it, someone's carrying it. Could be them. But this is the context. They're late for the office. They have an extra patient to see. Something happens where they feel rushed. And now the perception is they can't carry that bacteria. And their behavior, they don't wash their hands. And I hate to say it, but that's probably what happened to your mom. Someone carried that bacterium from a neighboring room, walked into your mom's room, didn't think they would be doing something to your mom, but she needed something adjusted. And the next thing you know, a medical error occurs and your mom gets a systemic infection. And again, I apologize for the outcome, which was terrible. Yeah, no. And, and, you know, I think very much like you, I think uh, I'm driven to do this work or this part of this work uh, in part because of my experience, mostly quite honestly, as a provider and as a physician executive and seeing, you know, how much room there is for improvement um, and, um, and, uh, the good we could do. Um, but, uh, and, and so it's, uh, you know, as well as some of the personal experiences and some point, honestly, of the patient experiences I've had as a provider, you know, I want to switch gears with you as well, uh, Robbie, for, for a moment, um, in your book, um, in your chapter, which, uh, on legacy players, um, you talk about, and I'm, I'm moving from, there's so many, so many places we could talk about. I mean, we were talking about medical errors. We could talk about overutilization. And I'd like to touch a little bit about that. Um, how, how much overuse, inappropriate use of medical procedures there are and, um, uh, and medical testing. Uh, but in your book, you say, um, the biggest issue for our nation isn't who funds healthcare in, in reality whether it's the government or employers, the iceberg that awaits us is the total cost of providing care. Uh, over time, if healthcare inflation continues at the current rate, all the choices will be bad. The only options will be either one, charge more people more, two, cut the benefits, or three, ration care for those who can't afford it. And regardless, health outcomes will suffer. Uh, and then you go on to talk about both the performance, improving performance efficiency and effectiveness. So, you know, we talked about you. Yeah, obviously we've spent a few minutes on medical errors and that issue and, and the human cost and the toll. What about the, the cost of care? How, how is there some examples uh, or numbers you can share with us about, about uh, how that is crippling our nation? Absolutely. The cost of care is becoming impossible for now nearly 50% of people. 50% of Americans today have what's called a high deductible plan. They've got to pay often several thousand dollars out of pocket in order to obtain the health care that they need. And what we know is that the typical American doesn't have several thousand dollars and has to borrow money, find some way to fund it. And increasingly, they're skipping things. A great example to me is insulin. I mean, insulin is a life-saving medication. And a study out of Yale showed that nearly half of the people with diabetes 
on insulin are cutting the dose because they simply can't afford what's now become a very expensive drug to provide. Uh, we see that in lots of places that people are not able to get the care or get the care in a timely fashion uh, that sits in play. And that's, that's the, the, the big problem that exists. And ultimately, that's why I make the point that it doesn't matter how you pay for it because whoever's going to pay for it can't afford it. The government can't afford it. The, the um, employers can't afford it. The patients can't afford it. What we need is not a different insurance system. We need a different care delivery system. This takes me back to the research on how context shapes perception and changes behavior. Because as soon as you take care and instead of having it fragmented, you integrate it both horizontally within departments and vertically between departments. Now, suddenly people see others as being collaborators. They're willing to be able to create centers of excellence rather than every hospital having to have its own cardiovascular program. I live in Silicon Valley and between San Jose and San Francisco, distance of 50 miles, there's 10 heart programs in community hospitals, 10. Three of them don't even do three of your cases a year, at least 65 days a year. They have a team prepared to do surgery and no patients. They're averaging less than one patient a day. What kind of quality, what kind of outcome? And yet in the context of being a hospital that wants to brag about its, expert, its expertise, they don't do the logical thing and put three of them together and close two of them on down. As soon as that you have that integration, you start to think that way. Number two, you have a situation where you want to pay people on a capitated basis. Because mm-hmm. as soon as you pay fee-for-service, you see the world differently. You start to do procedures. A great example to me is knee arthroscopy with cartilage trimming. Mm-hmm. Two exceedingly well-controlled studies show that at one year, the operation plus physical therapy is no better than physical therapy alone. And yet it's number one done operation in the United States today. Why is that? Because the context of a fee-for-service world and an insurance company that's going to pay it leads someone to actually do the procedure rather than to recognize how little value is added. The technology, we could spend a lot of time talking about technology. Much of what we have today is simply hyped technology. We talk about things. We talk about being able to take hundreds of EKGs and send it to the doctor's office. You and I are both physicians. 100 EKGs doesn't give you very much information for 98% of people. As soon as you know you have one, two, or three normal ones, you don't need anything else. And what doctor wants their electronic health record filled with all these tracings? I mean, it's crazy what exists And yet in a fee-for-service world, in an economically driven world, uh, that's the case. Even the electronic health record, I'm a big advocate for the electronic health record because I believe you can't provide the best care without having the clinical information there. But it's also designed around billing. It slows doctors down. And the majority of physicians' medical records don't connect with the other physicians. So when the patient comes in, they don't know. If they had a comprehensive, interoperable electronic health record where the information was presented to the doctor, something that doesn't exist outside of fully integrated medical groups, my dad would be alive. Because mm-hmm. they would have known he didn't have the vaccine. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have that information. Yeah. So the opportunity to be able to do that. Another example to me is video. Mm-hmm. I believe that one in three things that we do, 30% of what we do in the office today 
will be done in the future through video and actually far better through video. You can see the patient at home. You can have more frequent contacts for short time periods. You know, I'm a surgeon. I pronounce someone's foot. What do I tell them? Keep it elevated. You know how tough it is to drive to the doctor's office with your foot elevated above your heart? Almost impossible. Mm. That's what we do because it doesn't make any sense. Mm. But in the context of how medicine is structured and reimbursed and technologically supported or not supported, the things that we do, our perception is it's the best in the world. And our behavior is to continue in ways that could be far less expensive with far higher quality outcomes. You, you it sounds like you, again, I've had the privilege of reading your book and it sounds like you were actually just going through what you're calling the four pillars uh, upon which a, a superior medical system can be built. You talked about integration then this sort of capitation and now this 21st century technology, which you, you, you go into some depth. I want to, and then, and the fourth one, which you, you hadn't mentioned yet, which would, would be physician leadership. And those are your, are your four pillars, which I, I really like. I want to go back to the first one though and unpack it a little bit. Actually, the first two, if you would, uh, integration and then capitation, uh, the sort of, you know, prepayment, if you will. The integration, and so people use that word a lot, and it can mean a lot of things. What you described really was a seeing healthcare not from the purview of an individual hospital or even hospital system, but seeing it from a larger community perspective in terms of what's the need in the county, perhaps in the state, in that region, and 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 really managing healthcare from that more social or maybe societal level. And it's really about uh, um, coordinating that care and consolidating that care in some, in some respects. Uh, in your book, you actually quote another statistic, something about the fact that, you know, obstetrician gynecologists uh, uh, want to do surgery, but there's uh, in terms of hysterectomies and, but the number of hysterectomies has decreased greatly. And so you're getting a lot of OB-GYN uh, physicians doing a very small number of uh, hysterectomies, which is not a good thing from a quality perspective or safety perspective. And so again, the, the, the better path would be for a few number of them to do lots of them, get really good at them, have teams surrounding them that are really good and coordinated. And and so that's a, just another example you talked about in your book. So this, this, this integration reminds me of something else you mentioned in the book, which is when you visited um, uh, uh, the Jönköping County in Sweden and you, and they really approach healthcare from that perspective, from a county perspective. So say a little bit, could you, could, could you paint a, a picture of this integration that you're talking about? In the book and in my experience, when I was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the permanently half of Kaiser Permanente, mm-hmm. I looked at how do we provide the best care to our 12 million members? The same approach could could be applied as you're describing to community. But I think that when your care is integrated and you see an entire population, and not as a population, but as a population of individuals, you start to make different decisions. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, One example is the relationship of primary care and specialty care. And across most of the United States today, a lot of the primary care physicians see their job as to assess a patient. And when they need to have additional expertise to then send them to the specialist. That's a very fragmented approach. 
So one of the things that we did was to link together primary care and specialty care. So if you're seeing a patient in primary care and you need expertise from specialty care, rather than just sending the patient there and having them go home and wait for a phone call, to actually have a conversation between the primary care physician and the specialist and increasingly a video visit. And what we found is that 60% of the time, we could actually solve the patient's problem there and then. Because in those situations, the, the primary care physician often needs just a small amount of added information. Now, in the other ones, of course, they need to have a procedure done or some other uh, higher intervention. And in those situations, they could just be scheduled to see the specialist at that particular time. But you mentioned the four pillars, and I, I think it's very important for the audience to understand all four of them come together. The synergy of the four is far greater than the sum of each of the four individually. Mm-hmm. Because once you're integrated and you're capitated, you're paid in advance, and you have the technology, we can talk about something like colon cancer. I just uh, published a uh, Forbes piece on colon cancer. And the fact that patients in Kaiser Permanente during the time that I was CEO had a 28% lower mortality. Now, how did they get a 28% lower mortality? Well, some of it was actually the intervention and the lower complication rate, but most of it was prevention. And how was it prevented? Well, across the United States today, the people talk about colonoscopy. And colonoscopy is a very powerful, essential tool, but from a small percentage of the population, people with a family history or with previously identified polyps, equally effective from from the standpoint of diagnosis based upon the American Cancer Society is a FIT, a fecal immunochemical test. It's done once a year, five minutes in the privacy of your bathroom. You avoid that horrible prep where you got to take all that liquid and have diarrhea, you avoid the risk of a perforation. Much safer, less expensive, no complications. And now ask yourself, how many GI physicians in the United States, when a patient gets comes to them for colonoscopy, says, oh, you don't need a colonoscopy, a $3,000 procedure. Take this kit at home, I'll bill $50 to your insurance. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen outside of an integrated system of care. And when you have that information, it says that the ophthalmologist can hand them the kit. Every physician will know they haven't had it done, and every physician will then go ahead and do it. I write, as you know, in the book about sepsis, the disease that uh, took your mother's life, and how slow most physicians are to recognize it and to act upon it. And when you build it into that electronic health record, in a system that's going to benefit by preventing the complication, which you see in Kaiser Permanente, we had a 40% lower mortality from sepsis. You look at hypertension, the number one cause of strokes, 40% of strokes could be prevented through better management of blood pressure. Across the United States today, it's 55%. We were over 90%. You go down the list of areas, and when you start to see the world, and again, that word see, your mm-hmm. colleagues are colleagues now. You share the work together. It's not any one person who wants to be the superstar billing everything. Everyone is going to try to maximize the quality outcomes. And they're going to do it in a way that's not only going to provide great care when you get sick, because some people will, 
but prevent it in the first place, prevent the complications and do it all together with technology to support you. And then the fourth pillar, as you say, leadership, leadership, organizing the entire process. I mentioned before that there are 10 heart hospitals in the community between San Jose and San Francisco. There are two in Kaiser Permanente taking care of an equal number of patients because that's the right number to have both geographic proximity as well as superior quality outcomes. And lo and behold, guess what happens? The mortality from heart surgery, half, half the mortality because as you say, everyone there does enough volume and the teams get good enough working together to provide the best care with the fewest complications. Yeah, that's great. That's super. And thank you for sharing some of the stories from Kaiser Permanente because uh, I, I was so interested in, in, in hearing more about that. You, you tell another great story in the book about, um, it, it, again, this idea of working together, physicians working together and taking responsibility for the overall patient as a person and their health. Uh, a woman who went to uh, an ophthalmologist at Kaiser Permanente and uh, Kaiser and um, and uh, the it wasn't the physician I think it was the medical assistant who checked uh, her care gaps and saw uh, her preventive care gaps and saw that uh, she had not had a mammogram and uh, during one visit she reminded uh, the patient the woman and uh, the uh, the woman followed up again for a second visit with that ophthalmologist, and uh, again the medical assistant said, "Hey, I, I you know see that you haven't uh, yet had the mammogram." And what she did though was really quite extraordinary. She actually, after the visit, walked the patient over to mammography to actually get her to register uh, for a mammogram. And it turns out that um, the woman, in fact, had breast cancer. It was discovered because of what the medical assistant did and um, and potentially saved her life, which was quite profound. And I think it's just a, such a great example. And again, these are these are very common, uh, you know, cancers and, and uh, highly preventable and uh, speaks to the point that you were mentioning about integration. Exactly. This is the I Saved the Life program. And it's yes. the point, again, I'm, I'm making in writing the book. And I want to go back to the fact that physicians are so motivated. They're just stuck in a really bad system. It's why a third of them are depressed. It's why there's so much suicide. It's why half of doctors tell their children not to become physicians. Because the system is what's broken. And when you change that system, mm-hmm. context shapes perception and changes behavior. But I'll give you another example to me is fascinating. And that's Debbie Shetty. Debbie Shetty, as you know, is a heart surgeon. He runs 11 heart hospitals in India. Debbie's someone I know well. And if you ask Debbie, what do you do? Debbie will say to you, I set the value on a human life. You say, Debbie, what do you mean you set the value on a human life? He'll explain that every morning there's a line of 30 moms and 30 babies They've all been well worked up. They all have heart problems. They all need surgery. And although Debbie does a lot of free surgery, he can't do it all. And only about 10% of people in India have insurance. So he's got to explain the family's got to borrow the money. And he currently does surgery for $1,800 a case. And the mothers who can borrow the money, their children have surgery and live. The ones who can't take their babies home to die. The, The day that I visited him about a year and a half ago, Uh, It was around Thanksgiving. That day, 
his teams, and I think he has somewhere between six and eight teams, did 37 heart surgeries. That's more than most, almost any hospital does in a month in the United States. 37, including a heart transplant. His results are as good or better than the best in the United States. And by the way, Debbie was Mother Teresa's physician, so he's a pretty well-known individual. But why I tell the story about Debbie is for two reasons. Number one, because it shows what happens when you start to have collaboration and coordination. It shows what happens when you have uh, people who are specializing. Because one doctor only does a very unusual operation called the Tetralogy of Fallot. We all learned in medical school. It's so rare if you've seen five cases. That's a lot of cases for most physicians. But, of course, when you have that much volume, an individual can accomplish uh, all of that. Uh, he does the surgery in a way that he's obsessed about lowering the cost. Because he says, if I get the cost down from 1800 to 1500 more children will live. I will have raised the value. And here's the part that's so amazing to me, knowing our electronic health record. The day after a day, you know, the next day, he distributes to everyone in his hospital, including the housekeepers, the profit and loss statement from the day before. Mm. First, the fact that he has it. American hospitals takes 30 days. He has it the next day. But why does he do it? Because everyone in the hospital knows if they can lower that cost, they can provide more free care. Medicine is about that mission. And of course, Debbie's building a hospital now in the Cayman Islands. The Grand Cayman Islands, a beautiful, beautiful island, seven-mile white sand beach. 50,000 people live there. He's building a 2,000-bed hospital. Hmm. About 15 of those beds are for the people for the Caymans. Everyone else, Florida's a one-hour plane flight away. The American medical world has got to wake up to the fact that if we don't change soon, we will get disrupted. Whether we get disrupted by people like Debbie Shetty offshore or whether we get disrupted by Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan Chase onshore. Yeah, I've, I've read about that hospital. It's, it's pretty impressive. And like you're saying, the, the outcomes are just as good uh, as the best uh, places we have here in this country, and the costs are just a fraction. Um, so I, I think there's a lesson there as well. You know, I want to I want to um, ask you this question though about the integration you're talking about, the coordination of care, uh, the leveraging of the technology, all, all that, and, and and the leadership required to to really uh, uh, have a vision and put the strategy and tactics and plans and hold people accountable. All that I think is absolutely necessary. When people look at Kaiser Permanente. Um, and you talk about a capitated where physicians uh, are paid a certain fee, you know, per member per month, monthly fee, salary. So they're not, uh, there's not the uh, inducement to have to do more uh, because you, you get paid by what you, you do. Um, but there's the inducement um, and to do, to do better um, because you're paid by outcomes, uh, patient outcomes. So, um, and rewarded for that. Um, so how is, I mean, you clearly put that as one of your pillars, the second pillar as an integral part of this, of these four pillars. How, um, I mean, do you see the country moving in that direction? How reasonable is that? And I often hear that 
that when it, when when I mention or, or I'm in discussion around Kaiser Permanente, people often say, "Well, Kaiser's different. You know, they can do that. They can pull that off. Uh, the rest of us are not Kaiser." What do you say to that kind of argument? First, it's true that most of American medicine is not organized. It's not integrated. It's not uh, capitated. It doesn't have the technology, but it could. It could have that. I think it is the inevitable direction that our nation needs to go. And I remind people that um, Amazon is not coming up with this new venture that they have to figure out which healthcare insurer is the best. They're going to get rid of healthcare insurers. And by the way, they're going to only have some physicians in some hospitals, uh, not all of them. And so the question becomes, what, why doesn't it happen sooner? Mm-hmm. I'll give you one great example. So we look at the hospital utilization amongst Medicare patients. For the listeners, these are the people over age 65. And so you can take that population, you can compare something inside a Kaiser Permanente against the local surrounding community. And per thousand people in Medicare across the United States today, they use about 1,400 patient days. In Kaiser Permanente, when I was CEO, we were at 700. Now imagine if half of the patients in the United States today were no longer in the hospital, not because they were being somehow denied or sent home, because they didn't need to be. Half of that reflected quality. They didn't get the colon cancer in the first place. They didn't get the stroke. The other half was the fact that instead of running the hospitals on a five-day-a-week basis, a seven-day-a-week basis, now some physicians are saying, well, yeah, we're available on the weekends for emergencies. If you're admitted in the United States in a hospital on Friday night, you'll spend an extra day Compare with the exact same patient, the exact same diagnosis on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. So how now, what would happen in the United States if all of a sudden half of the patients were not in the hospital? Hospitals would have to close. If you're the hospital CEO, do you want to see your hospital close? Even if it's going to be so much better for patient outcomes, even if you're going to lower the mortality, raise the quality, lower the cost, Mm -hmm. you don't see it that way because context shapes perception and changes behavior. So the yeah. problem in the United States today, and this is, by the way, this is I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Mm-hmm. This is the classic American, or well, the classic story of disruption in the world. The people who are the legacy players that you mentioned before, they actually know what needs to happen. But they can't do it. Why? Because it's too threatening to them. Kodak had the patent for filmless camera. But they were making so much money for film, they would not bring it forward, and now they don't exist. Yellow Cab had the application we call Uber today. Right. But they didn't want to do it. They liked the system that existed. And it's why you and I spend our time giving talks and doing podcasts, because it's so hard to see what is going to happen when it's threatening. The context changes that perception and changes that behavior. And somehow, if we don't make that shift happen, American healthcare will pay the price. No matter what we do, it will be uncomfortable. Mm. But I think there are ways to do it that are less disruptive. But I can guarantee if it happens from offshore, if it happens through the big businesses, it's not going to be very, very pretty for the people providing the care today. And in the transition, I think the patient's will have a lot of bumps along the way. And my preference and yours 
is to help America make the change sooner rather than later and minimize the pain and disruption that inevitably will happen. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, when you talk about the number of lives lost, as we just, you know, when we started our conversation today, the, the large stats, and then on a very personal level, you know, the question becomes, you know, how, how long do you want to wait before you start to do what you know we should be doing? Um, I, I think that's the, that's the question I live with each and every day. Um, and um, I think you're right. It's, it's kind of what, what drives us. Uh, I, and by the way, thank you for that example. The, you, you know, it's, it's so refreshing to listen to you. The, uh, and I think you do actually mention this in your book that we spend uh, a lot of time uh, talking about uh, complex procedures and kind of the latest gadget and latest toy and the newest drug. And there's so much we have currently that works and works well if we just used it correctly and uh, integrated it and coordinated it and consolidated it and just carried it out the way it should be carried out. These like these preventive measures we were talking about. Your example, though, of keeping the hospital uh, working functionally, uh, functioning optimally seven days a week. You're absolutely right. I mean, I spent years as a hospitalist and um, in New York City, and uh, you're you're 100% right. I mean, I I rounded our team rounded during the weekends, but it it wasn't the same. The hospital wasn't functioning in the same way. So if you had a patient come in on Friday, um, which I, I really hated because especially if it was um, you know at all um, non-emergent, uh, uh, it was elective because you knew uh, the patient would be sitting around for an extra day or two. Not much would be happening um, over the weekend, and um, and you know not only is that cost to the patient and society, uh, it actually is dangerous uh, for them to be sitting around in a hospital for multiple myriad reasons. And so um, so I think that's just a great example of a simple solution that exists today that we could make happen. And, and to your point, the, the return on that investment um, in terms of savings to individuals, to payers, to the government, um, to our country in terms of healthcare costs is profound. So it's just a, I, I love your your, the simplicity of uh, the solutions that you've put together, these four pillars. The, uh, as, as you pointed out before, the American healthcare system isn't very much like Kaiser Permanente, but even Kaiser Permanente is not always like Kaiser Permanente. And I think this is, you know, to me, teaching the business school again, I look for examples that have somewhat of a control group. You know, we don't really have that in healthcare delivery very well. And if you look at Kaiser Permanente on the West Coast in California, and you look at the East Coast, where I was a CEO both on the West Coast and the, and the East Coast, and was had the same systems there. And then you look at the regions that closed, because Kaiser Permanente failed in Texas. It failed in um, North Carolina. It failed in New York. And people ask the question, how come it didn't succeed? And the answer was because it didn't do Kaiser Permanente. It put in place a health insurance system. And from a health insurance system, it's no different than anyone else, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, except that the fact that it had a small number of patients, it couldn't negotiate the same rates, and so it failed. It was inevitable. Kaiser Permanente requires that integration, that capitation, and that technology, and none of that existed in the regions that – Closed. And that to me is the message. 
Because if you want to restructure healthcare along the lines of the four pillars, you can't do a little here and a little there and pick a piece. You got to do it all with enough volume sitting in play. And again, that's why I, I think it's going to come out of the big uh, businesses. They're self-funded. Mm-hmm. So they have every incentive to want to control cost. It's their employees, so they have every incentive to want to raise quality. And they're large enough. That's why they're self-fund, capable of being self-funded. They have enough employees mm. that they now can actually start to create a truly integrated, capitated, technologically enabled. And I think, and I know two of the three CEOs, they're smart enough to actually bring in the physician leadership that's going to be necessary to actually make the entire system work. Now, what, you know, that's, that's really great. In fact, I was going to ask you that question in terms of, you know, where you see the, the sort of next three to five years and the major forces um, and shifts and who, which stakeholders in the best position. It sounds like you think the employers, what, uh, for, for the reasons you articulated it. And I, I actually have to say, I would agree with you. Um, what what strategies do you think the employers are going to take? Are they going to, because they're not providers, so they're going to have to partner with providers? Are they going to select providers that are the optimal? How, how, what would you say to, if you were speaking to a group of CEOs uh, of corporations who were interested in this um, and agreed with you and wanted to take action, what are the, what are the steps you would t- tell them? I would start with the population and make sure you have enough people in a given geography that you can start to control the marketplace. And now you want to start to ask yourself, how many people do you need? How many hospitals do you need? How many specialists do you need? How many cardiologists? How many orthopedic surgeons? And select the people out and get them to only take care of your population because as soon as they're taking care of people who are capitated and people who are fee for service, doctors get confused. I hate to say it that way, but I've seen it. I've seen people that have had two entrances, one for the capitated one at the back of the line and one for the fee for service at the front of the line. These are pretty famous places. I've seen that happening because context shapes perception and changes behavior. But I think if they're willing to wait a little while, that they won't have to do it because I think Amazon's going to do it for them. You know, this, this venture with Amazon and Berkshire and JP Morgan Chase is starting as a not-for-profit. And they have about a million people and they're scattered across the United States, but they're learning. As I said, these CEOs are very smart. And what they're most smart about is how much they don't know. And so they're going to take a few years to be able to figure this out. And then they're going to come up with a system where I think they're going to bring their friends and all the other large businesses and say, you know, amongst ourselves, we have a couple hundred thousand people in this relatively small geography. Why don't we create, they won't say the phrase Kaiser Permanente, but why don't we create a system like this that is now going to be able to provide care that's 20, 30, 40% higher in quality mm. that uses modern technology? You know, mm. we're talking about companies that have pretty sophisticated right. technology. We want a, right. a connected electronic health record. We want video. We want to be able to send text messages. We want digital images. And we want to be able to create a network of delivery. Not that we're going to tell them how to practice, but to put it together in a way where the context is going to change that perception, drive the behavior, and move towards better prevention, avoidance of complications, getting it right the first time, making sure there's adequate volume in every hospital, making sure at at the physician level there's adequate volume, not to get acceptable outcomes. That's a standard we use in the United States. What's the minimum standard? No, 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 to get the best outcomes. 
And I really believe that they're going to get there. And I think the reason they started their venture, I don't really know this for a fact, but I think was because they see that this is going to become the next retail. Amazon today is the largest retailer. It has more retail space than Walmart. Something like 17% of all retail transactions they're doing. If they all of a sudden start to do 17% of 3.4 trillion medical interactions, that would be a very profitable business. And I believe that that's where they're going. And if American healthcare doesn't get ahead of them, they will then get left behind just as borders did. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've been reading something similar to that, uh, that, uh, you know, Warren Buffett, uh, uh, and the other CEOs are, uh, I mean, this is not just a small nonprofit little side experiment. They're, they're, as you say, they're going to learn from this and expand it. I mean, there's $3.4 trillion, as you put it, and there's at least a third of it, as we all know, is waste, uh, at least a third. And, um, so they could do well, they could do good. Um, and, uh, you know, I think as Warren Buffett has now famously been quoted over and over again, you know, talking about healthcare costs as the, as the tapeworm for corporate America and really for, you know, for the country's, uh, economics, uh, sustainability. And so, um, there's an opportunity there and, and, and they have the organizational capabilities, they have the funding, they have the technology, um, and I think you're right. And they've already begun to do exactly what you said, right, which is they're pulling in physician leadership. I mean, uh, they chose a tool Gawande. Amazon is hiring other physicians. Um, it seems almost week by week they're hiring, you know, really fantastic uh, physician leaders who are expert in different facets of healthcare and um, healthcare delivery. So I think your prediction is, is spot on. It makes a lot of sense. And um you, you, we could run some thought experiments. It's interesting. As you were talking, I was running some thought experiments, but you could see uh, corporations in a region getting together and saying, how do we create a healthcare in our region? Um, and like you said, not just a good healthcare, but the, the best and um, uh, high quality and convenient, uh, customer oriented, uh, safe, uh, low cost, right? Um, really, really fascinating. Uh, Dr. Pearl, uh, I, you know, I, I have so many questions. I, I would love to pick your brain more, but I, I, I am sure you have to go and, and I don't want to keep you beyond what we said. Um, I'd love the opportunity to chat with you more. I, I do want to just put in a plug, um, for your new podcast. Uh, you're, you've written a book, you speak a lot, um, you do uh, writing and blogging, but you're going to, you're going to start a po- hosting a podcast called Fixing Healthcare. Um, do you want to just uh, say a word about that? So the, the idea of the podcast is to bring in people who are very successful. Uh, I started with uh, Z Dog MD. For those people who don't know Z Dog, he's a fascinating individual. Loves to entertain, but he started a, a medical program in Las Vegas called Turntable, uh, superb outcomes delivery system. Haley Fisher-Wright, the CEO of MGMA, was next, who oversees 1,300 uh, group practices. Dave Feinberg, David Feinberg is the next uh, guest coming from uh, Geisinger. Uh, after that, we'll be having Eric Topol, who's one of the world's experts on technology. And after that, Don Berwick from the IHI. So these are people who have tremendous insight. And I give them 10 to 12 minutes to outline a solution for American healthcare mm-hmm. with the position that small increments are not what we're looking for. 
one-offs that work someplace. Everyone's got enough of those. We want a solution that's going to increase quality 20%, increase access 20%, lower cost 20%, lower increase patient satisfaction and physician satisfaction by 20%. And they spend 10 or 12 minutes being able to outline for the listener what that system would look like. And the fascinating part to me is how different they all are, but how powerful they all could be. And then the rest of the program, I get the chance to really probe in depth, really trying to separate where the hype is and where the reality is, making sure the listeners understand all the things that are being said. And my plan right now is to run the podcast, bringing in experts for somewhere between six and 12 months. And then I'm going to bring in a whole different set of experts, ones who are expert in implementation, and go to the question of saying, if we have six to 12 really good ideas for how this could get done from people who have experience, who've now had a stress test by me and by the listeners, what's it going to take to actually make the change happen? One of the key lessons to me in the business context is that strategy is important, but strategy without implementation mm-hmm. is powerless. Absolutely. And so the hard part is how do you make that change? How do you get those hospitals to be able to consolidate in a positive way, not consolidate for higher pricing, but consolidate for better function? How do you get physicians who are doing only a few of everything every year to be able to recognize how much better patient care? If someone else did that procedure and they focus on the thing they're really good at, we don't have a redundancy of skill. Our bad results are the fact that we don't use people in a positive way, most effectively, because the context of American medicine, it's fragmentation, it's piecemeal fee-for-service, it's poor technology, and it's lack of leadership, creates bad outcomes, outcomes that kill hundreds of thousands of people, including your mom and my dad, every single year, and will make us best Number one in the world in only one category, how expensive we are. Yeah, cost, right? <laughs> Robbie, um, you are tremendous. What you're doing is tremendous. Um, I, um, I'd love to let me know what I, what I could do to help you with uh, promoting your podcast. Um, I have a feeling we're going to be uh, uh, sharing some of our guests. I hope we do. And um, I'd love to, I'd love to have the opportunity actually to, uh, speak with you again on this podcast after you get the your podcast going and and uh, get some summary and hear how it's going. Well, Zev, you're a, you're a visionary leader. I think this is fifty plus podcasts that you've done, so it would be a lot of fun to keep exchanging ideas. And I really appreciate you inviting me today to be your guest. My pleasure. It's been tremendous. I really really enjoyed it. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you. So, folks, I uh, hope you have enjoyed and benefited from this interview with Dr. Robert Pearl. Uh, I, I've learned so much from reading his book and from having the opportunity to speak with him a number of times and uh, listening to him during this interview itself. And as always, I, I'd like to conclude this uh, podcast with thanking uh, the listeners out there who are uh, doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients and those of you who are out there supporting those who are directly taking care of patients. This is, uh, obviously why we're all here. This is the important work of, of healthcare. Uh, and, uh, until next time, be well. <laughs>